Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Love and Fame from our 2018 programme. The Times has said of Susie Boyd that she writes with great precision and wisdom about the human heart under duress. Her six novels include Love and Fame, a complex and witty exploration of grief, and The Small Hours, a psychological study set in a nursery school. The acclaimed author and Financial Times columnist has also recently edited The Turn of the Screw and Other Ghost Stories by Henry James, and is the author of of a much-loved memoir, My Judy Garland Life. Boyd is the daughter of the late artist Lucian Freud and great-granddaughter of Sigmund. She joins Kate de Goldie for a discussion of life, art and the landscape of human feeling in a session supported by Platinum Bold patrons Josephine and Ross Green. We hope you enjoy it. I thought that to talk briefly about the beginning of your writing career, your first three novels are linked to a degree in that they um, each feature young women in moments of crisis at the sort of beginning of their lives as adults. Um, see if I can remember them, it'll be a feat. Martha, Nina, and help me out. Nina doesn't sound quite right. Okay, I'll stop that. Um, <laughs> the f- your first three novels, The Normal Man, Jane, I think it's Jane, Jane. Nell, and Martha. Sorry, Nell, yeah. And um, so these are the beautifully named The Normal Man, The Hope of Lost Girls, and The Characters of Love. And I just want you to talk a little bit about how you came to write and how those um, first three slightly connected novels evolve. I mean, all your novels have commonalities. Gosh, so The Normal Man... um came out sort of 25 years ago, so I probably haven't thought about it for about 19 years, but I started writing it, um, I was in one of those situations where you're waiting for someone who's always, always late, and I sort of thought, I must settle myself to something so I don't notice the lateness so much, and um, I started writing a short story. I had an idea, I'd heard about, in fact, I'd heard from my dentist's um, assistant about someone who'd cut their hand um, washing, washing their hands at a party. They'd knocked over the tooth mug and it had shattered on the base and jumped up and cut their hand here. And they'd had to go to casualty and everyone at casualty thought that they'd, at the hospital thought that they'd tried to cut their wrist. And so someone who was having a perfectly nice evening out was suddenly in the situation of being treated like a sort of suicidal person, which she sort of genuinely wasn't, but also why had she had that accident? So I was writing this short story about this, waiting for this young man who, in fact, never turned up. (laughs) Sadly. And um, and that incident um, sort of formed a sort of key scene in The Normal Man, and, and she is taken to hospital by someone she's only been talking to at a party for 10 minutes, who they've got on rather well, but they've literally been talking for 10 minutes, so suddenly she's on a kind of very strange extended date in a hospital where everyone thinks she's attempted suicide. Um, And then that book was just about that weekend in her life and all things that sort of came from those realisations. That weekend also turned out to be the 10th anniversary of her father's death, and so it was very... Um, not surprising that she would have had a, a, a bad accident that time, and so it sort of looks back into everything that's happened before then. And she's, um, she has, is reading a book for quite a lot of the book called Good Love, Bad Love, question mark after each, and the central question for her seems to me, and there's much going on, including the loss of her father that she's revisiting, but she's um, concerned about whether love can be ordinary and domesticated and nurturing, or whether it is going to be dramatic and challenging, as in Anna Karenina, for an example, which she reads. And that's appearing often through your stories. Yes, I think she has got that um, adolescent thing that we can all have, that um, misery and dismay are what, what an authentic life should contain in the main kind of thing, which we all have to grow out of. Um, I was thinking this morning that I was... I was brought up a little bit to feel that maybe what life was was 
selecting a set of excruciating circumstances and then suffering with a ton of style. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what my mother taught me. <laughs> and, um, but I didn't do it, so, so that was good. <laughs> Phew. I think the style's there. <laughs> Thank you. And um, there's an epigraph to the um, Last Hope of Girls, which is a um, beautiful title. The Last Hope of Girls, um, from E. Cummings. Can you read it? I just want to talk about that a little bit. Um, <coughs> it says, to be careless, dauntless, to create havoc, that was the last hope of girls. Yeah. So. And, um, I mean, like all epigraphs, it kind of hangs over the book. Could you just talk a little bit about The Last, Char uh, the last Hope of Girls? Because it's, it's an intriguing and rather delightful book. Um, let me just think which one that one is. Oh, yes. Um, so it's about a, a young woman who um, gets a strange job, which is being a caretaker of a block of flats on Oxford Street itself, which is the biggest and brashest shopping street in London. And so she's... Um, and the flats are all uninhabited and being done up, so she's sort of looking after them in the, in the interim. And some of them have been recently deserted, and they're all quite sort of ghostly in a way. So she's got this amazing thing to be a young person in charge of all these flats, and she can sleep in different rooms if she wants, but at the same time, it's pretty desolate. Now, let me think what else... And her, she, um, <laughs> the, co the coordinates... This is annoying when you're um, readers. No, it's good. More it's familiar good. with them than you are at the moment. Um, it's not annoying, but you have a lot of power in this scenario. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, a lot, there's density in your books, so there's lots to, um, lots to cover. Um, her, her life is sort of dishevelled and makeshift in a way because of the job that she has, but she's also coming to terms with a relationship with her father. Fathers are everywhere in your books, as are mothers, in slightly different forms, and her father is um, a famous writer and has seemed often to her austere and a little bit distant, but she's very attached to him. Yeah, he's one of those do-not-disturb writers, so she's, she has a memory of him as a child when, when um, passing him on the stair and having a strong feeling that he hopes that she hasn't seen him, kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> and and um, she prides herself on never having read any of his novels. He's a sort of um, very severe, very English, um, sort of rather snobbish and cold person. And um, But one day she decides to read one of his books, mm. doesn't she? And that has quite a sort of powerful effect it's on a revelation. her. revelation. Yeah, yeah, she sees a character that she identifies with herself and there's sort of a way into him that she hasn't imagined before. And we need to get this out of the way. You indeed had a famous father yourself, um, who was not a writer but a painter. Mm. And without suggesting that um, this is just transplanted autobiography, the father looming large presumably has at least some um, origin in that relationship with your father. Yeah, I guess so. There's a lot about their domestic life together, and I never lived with my mm. father, so in a way, I, it was a sort of imagining that a little bit of what that might have been like. Annoyingly, when my dad picked up that book, he said, ah, oh, written eight novels. For that, I'm going to take eight paintings. And I felt, even you're reading my book in an annoying way. <laughs> Families do that. It's funny, a, a sister of mine who's a writer wrote a novel, and there was a character that was very like my dad in it, and I was quite worried about how he was going to take it. But he said to me, I thought it was me. And then she kept talking about how he was wearing a wristwatch. And I've never worn one, so it couldn't have been me, could it? <laughs> <laughs> in, um, in the um, characters of love, there's, I think it's in there, there's a, a poet who has um, quite a bad mental health problem. And yeah, who's her teacher at university. So she, the um, character there falls in love quite... Um, fixatedly um, and seems to have discovered her moment, the sort of dream and mythology of love that she's always thought about. And also she's seen that poet on the television as a teenager and always mm. admired him and had a joke with her friend that they would get together with him one day and then when she goes, to, she sort of goes to his college and then, and then she does manage to get him, but it's, it's pretty terrible. Mm. Now, I know that you did a, an honours or doctorate on John Berryman and... Henry James? Yes, that that's right. Yeah. And you do actually reference John Berryman in that book, and clearly, you know, you're um, moving around the idea of the conflicted or afflicted poet. Mm. Can you just talk a little bit about what drew you to him? Because he's referenced, you know, occasionally through the novels, and his subject matter is a deity, isn't it? 
Yes, well, I first um, discovered him. I, I worked in a bookshop on Saturdays and Sundays for a long time, and I, I had about six part-time jobs. I worked for a literary agent on Tuesday and Thursday mornings. I worked in a bookshop on, Fridays and Saturday, on Saturdays and Sundays. I did one hour a day for a local member of parliament who was working on parenting issues. And then I had another job where I had to check an office every day to see if there were any messages. And Every single day I went there, there was never a message. <laughs> and that person was a friend of mine's father, and now I think he was just sort of helping me out because he knew I was broke. <laughs> and I must thank him one day. Um, but uh, where am I going with this? John, Ber John, John Berryman. Berryman. Yes, so in the bookshop, we were, on Sundays we were completely unsupervised, so we used to get buns in from the, there was a health food shop next door and read the papers and just sort of spread out of it. And then I used to sit in, I used to spend ages tidying the poetry section, which was just reading poetry books. And I discovered John Berryman there. So I'd never heard anyone mention him before. So I had that nice feeling that he was mine a bit. And then I found out other people I knew liked him. But his um, main thing that drew me to him was his collection of poems called The Dream Songs, which is about a character called Henry, who in some way resembles him, um, is a sort of a scholarly, lost, wild, um, at times drunken, very, very sensitive, um, suffering American man. And he just sort of really caught my imagination. Mm. I sort of, I was moved by his humour and, and felt for his suffering. And, and um, yeah, I just... It was a sort of um, a sort of smash of good feeling between mm. us, and yeah, and I mean, what, what's very evident in all the novels, and I guess you're sort of um, you you peak with this notion in the last three or the most recent three, is wounded people are throughout the book, but you have have a quite sort of radical um, empathy for them. So a reader never gets impatient with them because you're you're showing us very carefully how this has come about and how we must honour their woundedness. I've always had a tremendous sympathy for very bad behaviour because uh, I, I, and I myself generally behave very well, but often I want to do something really dreadful and I feel I just need two people to give me permission and then I don't need to, whereas if everyone says, are you out of your mind, then, 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 uh, then I might have to. But, uh, so I, I, <laughs> I feel characters behaving badly I, I feel we all want to behave badly quite a lot of the time, and very few of us own up to it. And mm. so I, I've, I have always felt a lot of sympathy for that. Um, the kind of tremendous envy and things we might have. You know, if you've just lost your mother and someone else is complaining about theirs, it's very hard not to say, well, at least you've got one kind of thing, but obviously you're not allowed to. And I just sort of think periods of um, tremendous grief or disappointment make us want to behave really badly. And so mm. I'm, interesting, I'm interested in letting people behave as badly as they possibly can while still making them sympathetic. Mm. There's, a, there's a, absolutely a geography in your books. People are going down streets and they're going into houses and we have a feeling of, you know, a setting. And there's more that could be said about that because sometimes you're describing a particular kind of Englishness and way of being in England. But the novels feel very interior as well because all these feelings and this mesh of kind of um, responses that your characters are having are constantly being annotated and monitored by them in their head thinking, should I say this? Should I not say that? How will I act next? Is, again, not wanting to be oddly you know, autobiographical about it, is that a kind of state of mind that was very familiar to you that you wanted to sort of get around or understand? Well, I think that partly came from another literary love of mine I have, which is Henry James, and there's a tremendous sense in his books of people hearing things that other people haven't quite said or almost saying something or, or thinking what might have happened if they'd said the thing and how the other person might have re retaliated and the, the sort of status of um, information that's almost been shared and passed but hasn't quite, and so I sort of... Fledgling conversations. Mm. I'm also very, very aware that two people can have the same conversation and hear utterly different things, and it's not to do with anyone lying or anything. I remember when I was 16, I had a friend who was very anorexic, and she was a brilliant cook, which a lot of anorexic people are. And she invited 10 of us from school round to her house, and she made an absolutely beautiful dinner, and she didn't even lay a place for herself at the table. 
and I went into the kitchen and I said, I just have to say, I feel this whole thing is making me feel really sad. I don't feel I can just sort of sit down and pretend everything's okay. And she was, you know, a bit cross or upset, and I, I can't remember if I went home or... And then three weeks later, she said to me, imagine how I felt when you came into the kitchen and told me how ugly I was. And, mm. and that was completely 100% what she'll always think happened then. And, and is a sort of truth in a way, even though it was obviously a distortion and a kind mm. of madness. And I remember thinking then, human communication is really, really complicated. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I've always sort of had that in the back of my mind. Sometimes when you're with someone and you're talking about something, you, you feel them approximate what you've said into something that they're slightly more familiar with. And they've almost heard you say something you just didn't say. And you, you can sort of think, have I got the energy to clarify or just let mm. it go? And so I suppose those kind of instances are mm. interesting to me. People um, taking very different facts from the same words. And in a way, I mean, this happens in all relationships, but it reaches its kind of acme in marriage. And in your fourth novel, Only Human, we have this wonderful um, marriage guidance counsellor, Marjorie. I mean, the novel is about Marjorie's crisis once her 17-year-old daughter leaves home. Mm. But threaded throughout it are her conversations with couples she's counselling. And two things that you just said are really very funny in here. Um, one is that the couples are, s are sort of showing marriage as a performance a lot of the time to her. Mm. And she is sort of tirelessly staying calm and offering them ways of, you know, working around their, their bad habits. But what I love the most about it, the book, is every now and again you'll get a, um, a three or four sentences of um, Marjorie's alleged conversations. Blah, 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 blah. Marjorie did not say. Right. She's, constantly <laughs> <laughs> she's constantly not saying the things. So there's sort of two stories in a way, or two Marjories. There's her counselling persona and her relationship with her friends. And then there's what... Um, She's really thinking. Well, in a counselling situation, um, you're very aware that um, you might have some gorgeous little well-honed, insightful point that you want to make, but it might not be helpful or relevant to what the couple need to hear. So mm. you'd, it's not about you showing off and, and giving a good account of yourself. And so she's, she's sort of mindful of, of um, having some very dashing remarks she could... That, might look good if the thing was being filmed, say, but actually it's not, it's, um, she has to let it go. Mm. And the other thing she has to... Editing, I guess it's a sort of editing. Yeah. The other thing she has to accept is that she can't really make, make her people stay together. She, she becomes, um, she gets chastised, actually, by her supervisor, eventually. Yeah. There's a very touching moment that um, she gets into trouble because she's overly keen for everyone to reconcile, which I think happens to quite a lot of marriage counsellors. And it reminded me of um, when I was 19, I had these friends called um, Laura and Peter, and they were the first couple I knew, and they sort of baked pies, and they were really domestic for people of that age, and they, they were a bit like my mum and dad. And went, I saw them a lot, even though I was probably only six months younger or something. And... I remember when they broke up, the first thing that Laura said to Peter is, how the hell are we going to tell Susie? <laughs> <laughs> because friends do get invested in the success of people's relationships. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah, they but facilitated a, a lovely part of my social life as well. And yeah. yeah, of course. You know, they were practically saying, we don't love you any less. And <laughs> she made did they, did they work out custody? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the absent character, the absent dad and husband in um, that novel, Only Human, is um, Hugh, who died only a couple of years after he and Marjorie married. Mm. And, I mean, absence, loss and grief are mm. in all your books. But in this book, um, there's also, I mean, there's very comic moments everywhere as well. But I, I really want to ask you about Hugh collecting chairs. Um, that there's a room full of chairs that he shows um, Marjorie initially, mm. and then she's left a little bit of a legacy with his chairs, isn't she? I mean, maybe that is chairs, yeah. but I felt that there was a, um, a symbol at work there, and I'm damned if I can figure it out. Yeah, no, I'm scratching my head too. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, what was I going to say? Um, that Hugh and Marjorie situation partly came out that I had a... I've never done any matchmaking in my life, but once two friends met at my house and they really hit it off and they got married within three months, which was a bit insane, and then they got divorced within the year. 
And um, I didn't blame myself, but um, my f they'd had a Catholic wedding because my friend was a c quite a strong Catholic. And so she wanted to get an annulment. And I was the, had to be the witness. It's a, you can get... You have to get divorced first, and then you get an annulment so that the, so you can marry again in the Catholic Church. So I went to see this. It, it was so Dickensian. I went to see this woman who is at the top of this very, very tall red brick building around the back of um, the Catholic Cathedral in London. And she asked me questions about their relationship for about five hours, writing it all down with a pen and saying things like... And she did that thing that you have to do in a history exam where anything you assert, you then have to provide evidence for. So she was asking me things like, um, you know, what, what, what signs do you think they were that they, they, they weren't suited or that he wasn't serious? And I found myself saying things like, well, he, he, was, he was a bit too attached to the high life. And she'd say, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, she liked to, you know, make food at home and he liked to go into restaurants or, and they were trying to be saving up or just sort of... And I said to the woman, this must be about the saddest job in the whole world. Mm. You're just helping things disintegrate, you know, in the fine detail of disintegration of a relationship. And she said, I had the most wonderful husband in the world, and he died after we'd been together for four years, and I'm giving people a second chance here. They can put their mistake to one side, and then they can go forward. And I, wasn't, I still wasn't convinced, but I thought of Marjorie mm. then that, that, mm. in, that you know, it, it was too simplistic to say that because she was mm. grieving her own loss, she wanted everyone else to, mm. to be together. But there's an element of that mm. in it. But it came from going to visit that mm. an, annulment specialist. But she did marry again and was very happy, so it mm. all ended, ended up well. Ma Marjorie, I was delighted to see, has um, a tiny, tiny walk-on part in Love and Fame when um, Beach, the guidance counselor, the bereavement counselor, is, uh, just mentions in passing that she's going off to visit and talk to a marriage guidance counselor who's trying to get all her people to stay together. It is yeah, Marjorie, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, so that's okay. a nice little in-joke for me and you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really enjoyable. Um, just going back to uh, you, yourself have trained as a bereavement counsellor, Yes, yes, just as a sort of voluntary one, yeah. yeah. So ha w w what does that involve for you? Is it a, an ongoing...? Um, well, I did it for about 10 years, and then I stopped for about 10 years, but I have just started again. Mm. I don't know if it's the same here, but that was one of the reasons sort of behind writing Love and Fame, that um, in the UK, people have made it sort of almost impossible to grieve. It's... there's hardly any permission to do it at all so that people might lose a parent or a very significant loved one on a Thursday and sort of be expected to be back at work on a Monday. There's no, there's no sense that um, <coughs> you have to be very, very sort of creative and confident to sort of insist on a, mm. on a different way of doing it. Does that feel to you to be a cultural thing, you know, um, to, do with, to do with the English alleged stuff I, think, I think it's to do with a horror of a lack of productivity. Everything is so based on achievement and getting things done and being busy and seeming to be busy that people, any feeling or living out of grief is seemed to be completely against that. And that's why, why people are, are so terrified of it that, that, I mean, that's the thing people always say, you must keep busy, you must keep busy. But that to me is like, the old-fashioned advice that if someone's having a nosebleed, you have to lean your head back, which stops the bleeding, but then your mouth just fills with blood, and then where does that get you? you know, so, mm. I, so I sort of feel that, um, I fi for me, I feel, and not everyone wants to do this or is able to do this, but I think, you know, when you have a baby, it's considered fairly normal to spend a lot of time at home in your dressing gown, just learning how to be a family and holding the loved one close to you. And I think often what works best for people, not for everyone, is to do a similar thing when you lose someone that you really, really love, to just be very quietly at home, hold the loved person close to you in your heart and um, adjust to a new way of being a family without them. Mm. And, I, and I, I sort of wish people were able to do that. That, mm. that it wasn't considered totally outlandish or if you don't return someone's phone call within two weeks, people think that you don't want to be their friend anymore or there's sort mm. of all this busyness around, but just to have that quietness. Mm. 
Let's talk about love and fame. Beach. Um, there are f f four important characters, five maybe. Beach and her sister, Rebecca or Rachel? Rebecca. Thank you. Um, Rachel, Rebecca has just married and... No, Eva's just married. Oh, God. Eva's just married. Rebecca's the journalist. Sorry. Um, and Beach and Rebecca are very close and... They're Beach. sort of too close, aren't yes. they? They need to separate. And Beach, the counsellor, who's a really attractive character, is somewhat locked into needing to um, kind of counsel her sister or keep her sister on the straight and narrow a yeah. lot of the time. They both lost their mother when they were tiny children, mm. and so Beach has kind of made a vow to be the grown-up, even though she's only a couple of years older. Mm. And she feels Rebecca's very strongly on her hands. Eve has just married Jim who is writing a book about the positive side of anxiety. He's investigating anxiety and basically finding it a sort of useful thing to a degree. Well, I think he's... he's I mean, that's only the bit of the book that we hear about, mm. but his sort of theory is that you can't just banish anxiety and try to get rid of it. You have to sort of listen to what it's communicating mm. to you. So those relationships are juxtaposed to a degree, and they're kind of um, united by Jean, the mother of Eve, whose husband, the actor, has just died, another, another absent father. So there's grief and loss all the way through the story, but also the hope of um, a, f a good future in the marriage of Eve and Jim, but things are just not straightforward. Mm. Um, and it's an incredibly um, controlled and beautiful series of relationships and interactions and nothing feels managed, even though there's quite a coincidence in terms of how some things happen. And you, you said that the book came out of a period of mourning for yourself. Where do you start on investigating that in a fiction? Well, this book as well started as a short story. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a, um, a short story about just the, the first year of a marriage. And um, it started with Eve and Jim and, and um, <coughs> someone about to go on their honeymoon. And uh, the thing about Eve is that she's just had a... She's got a... Age 25, she's got a brilliant career behind her, which is she left drama school. She's the daughter of a famous actor. She left drama school. She got a part as Nina in The Seagull in the West End and got such bad stage fright that she had to sort of drop out of it, which would pretty well spell the end of career. And yes, you were very, very lucky again. So she sort of, in a way, got married on the rebound. She's been working in the bookshop and a, a nice young man comes in and, and, and he's... He, so you've got these sort of... You've got this... It, it already feels like something sort of mm. a bit second best about mm. it, but... Um, so you see her on, a, on the honeymoon, and at the end of the honeymoon, she hears that her father's died, and so it's, she's gone straight from a celebration to a, to a state of mourning. Mm. And she basically keeps going home to stay with her mother. I mean, it hovers so brilliantly between sadness and comedy, mm. and the mother will wake up in the morning and say, oh, oh you're here. You know, and equally, Jim will wake up and think, where's she gone? And in a sense, the marriage that's not quite working is something that's on the cusp of being lost all the time, mm. isn't it? So her career's lost, the marriage might be lost. Maybe this is the time to, um, to read um, Beach and um, her sister in their phone conversation. Um, we're going to do this We're going to do a little, a little playlet. At, um, at Susie's invitation. Um, I'll get you to open it for us. So this little scene is, um, Rebecca's a, quite a high-powered journalist, and she has been asked to interview a big film star in a hotel, which is fairly obviously Claridge's. And she, she's been waiting for him for a long time, and it looks like he's probably not going to show up, but she has to sort of hang... They keep saying he's going to be another half an hour, he's coming, he's coming, but he, it doesn't look like he is. Um, so she's sort of jumping on the bed in the hotel and sort of trying to amuse herself, and she decides... They ring and say he's not coming for another two hours, so she decides to go down to the bar for a little break. <coughs> <coughs> she went down to the bar for a change of scene, took a seat at the marble counter. Been waiting for someone for six hours, she complained to the barman, who tutted nicely. Mine's only an hour late. The man sitting three stools to the right of her seat. Lucky, she smiled. They got talking. He said he was a professor of psychiatry. 
God, poor you, that must be dreadful. I know. The man was tall, almost pointlessly so, elegant, a little stricken looking, his nervous air set off by a beautiful grey suit. She bought him a drink, at least she tried to, she thought with some finesse. He asked for a small glass of red wine, then said realistically he'd prefer some tea, Darjeeling for perfection. She had some too. He insisted on paying, said straight off he was married, which impressed her. He didn't have to tell her that. Do you practice as well as teach as well as preach, she said. I used to, but... You didn't get struck off, did you? Excellent question, he laughed. But no, it used to get me down, that's all. Took the job home with you? You have to be quite tough, not to, and... And you're not tough? Not so much. How about you? Oh, I'm quite tough. Oh, well done. They moved on to glasses of red wine, small ones, 125 mil. It was only 10 past five. He was attractive. Do people underestimate you because of your looks? You know, I think the reverse is true. He laughed. If I'm perfectly frank. My name is Frank. Do people call you perfectly frank? <laughs> um, they don't, I'm afraid. Wish they did. When you were practicing, you must have had half the heart-sore women in London beating a path to your door. It did sometimes feel like that. You must have had to sleep in your boots. Well. She moved her right foot back and forth in its high-patent sandal, following the progress with her eyes. The thought flitted across her mind that they were in a hotel. It also flitted across her mind that the same thought was flitting across his. <laughs> I've got this amazing suite upstairs. She was bored, really. I've got cakes, I've got 22 pounds of fruit, I've got two matching raincoats with fur lining in the wardrobe. I've got, she mentioned the name of the film star, coming for an interview in an hour and a half, but he's 99% not going to show. Is there a good view? Grey rooftops stretching for miles and dark brick in the backs of houses. Sounds marvellous. She stood up, conscious of her physical equipment. She yawned. My sister says I should live life more. She sounds an excellent person. She walked into the lobby with the black and white marble checks, pressed the gold button to summon the lift. He slipped into the lift beside her, going up. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, she was stretched out like a swastika on the big white bed. <laughs> she, she was debuting her midnight blue silk slip with the baby blue lace. Vivaldi was playing through the hotel television. Perfectly Frank was in the bathroom. 18 inches above the bed, her sister Beach's wry face was shaking its head. What? She glared at her big sister. What? Why do you sit on my shoulder like some size 12 parrot and judge me 24 hours a day? She laughed uneasy in the sheets. Why was he taking such a long time in the bathroom? Was he nervous? Was he having second thoughts? Was he stuck in some disgusting way? <laughs> was he trying to... What if the actor turned up? Perfectly Frank would have to go in the cupboard. There was a, <laughs> there was a nice cozy corner between the max and the safe she had earmarked for him. She had a sense that when Frank emerged from the bathroom, they might just talk. It was a bit ambitious, beds and hotel rooms. It wasn't even dark. She put her cardigan on over her slip. <laughs> he was nice to talk to, quite civilized. She wanted someone to be on her side against something or someone. She didn't know what exactly. Could he manage that? The door was opening, and he stood before her in the hotel robe, his clothes neatly folded over his arm. She encountered on him seeming in white toweling like Gatsby, but he looked sheepish, sheepish and greedy. He bounded towards the bed. She didn't love the expression in his eye. <laughs> Just going to the loo for a minute, she said, and sped past him. <laughs> she locked the door noiselessly. He had been 10 minutes, so she could have 15. If her interviewee arrived, she would just have to... What? She knew he wasn't going to come. You could tell from the tone of the PR, but he might. Wouldn't Beach be over the moon if she lost her job? She felt a bit sick suddenly, sick of herself. From the little marble bathroom, she telephoned her sister Beach for advice. Hey, Beach. Hello there. How's it going? Bit crazy. Oh? Not feeling too brilliant. Did you have a chance to think any more about what we said the other day? I don't know. There's so much help for you, for people out there. OK, Beach, I get it. All right, then. Well, I'm just about to leave work now, so might head home and... Can you talk a bit more? Sure. Can I ask you something? Of course. Look, and I'm not very proud of this. There's a man in the bed, and he's expecting sex big time. It's possible he even thinks I'm a prostitute, and I don't know how to get out of it. And if the hotel finds out, I'll lose my job. And to complicate things further, a famous film star might show up at any moment, and I'll have to shove the bed guy in the cupboard, and that I'm in my nightie. And how's that all going to work? Do you have any tips for me, any advice or serving <laughs> suggestions? 
Do you have any words of good counsel, O oh wise one? Because at this moment in time, to be perfectly frank, I feel quite like hanging myself. <laughs> Instead, she heard her voice ask quite calm and matter-of-fact, something she had been meaning to ask her sister for over a decade now. It's about when Mum died. Could you face talking about that? All right. Do you remember the priest? The Irish one? Yeah, I do. So when he said she was so calm and accepting of her death and completely unafraid, when he said that her courage and peacefulness would have been amazing in someone in their 80s, but for a person in her 30s, it was absolutely astonishing. When the priest said that at the funeral, y yes. do you remember him saying that? Yes, I do. Do you remember what it felt like to hear those words in front of everyone? Well, I, I guess I felt slightly relieved that it was finally over and that in his eyes, Mum was a champion and glad she was peaceful and didn't experience too much anguish or anything like that, that we hardly saw anything that was truly horrible, apart from, you know what I mean, the whole thing being horrible. But? But I felt sad for us that he, he didn't also say she was sorry to leave us. Sad, that's one word for it. I imagine he thought if he said it broke her heart to leave us, it might have been more than anyone could take. But I think he made a mistake not saying that. It was too tidy, too neat. Do you think she did die with a broken heart then? I suppose I do, really. What makes you think that? Well, I know it was very hard for her to leave us. How do you know? It was written all over her face. It was in the atmosphere in the room, the way she always wanted us physically so close to her and in the bed with her all the time. She didn't want to let go of us at all. I remember wondering if she wanted us to take us with her. Did she want us there in the bed all the time or did we want it? I think everyone wanted everyone. But it was her idea to have us in the bed. I don't think we would have had the confidence to suggest it, and, and Dad wouldn't have exactly had the strength of mind to. But I mean, how did you feel when the priest said what he said? How did I feel? I felt like a little worthless piece of nothing. I felt like the priest was advertising the fact that he was giving proof to everyone that we didn't count for anything. I felt ashamed of myself. Why would he say that with two little kids under his nose? I don't know. Because he was a sadist, maybe? Well, I don't know about that, but religion can be poisonous sometimes. You said it. Thank you so much for telling me this. It's okay. Did you never think of mentioning it before? Well, for a long time, I was hoping to forget about it, and then I suppose I did forget for a little bit, and then it came back to me. I didn't want to take you down with me in case you had forgotten or something. That was very thoughtful. I can be thoughtful when I put my mind to it. Yes, yes, you can. That's kind of how it works. <laughs> but Beach... Maybe it's even more awful if she died with that much sadness and regret. Maybe that's just too distressing for us. And, and if she didn't feel peaceful, like you said at the end, I mean, what if it's worse this way? Do you know what? Why don't I pop over now? I can jump in a cab, won't stay long. Just want to give you a squeeze. Is that all right? It's just a bit too much to take in. It's just maybe too hard to deal with. I'm not at home, though, Beach. Where are you? I'm still at the hotel waiting for what's-his-face. Thing is, Beach, I'm in a bad situation. I think I've made a mistake. What's going on? I've got this man in tow. I shot myself in the bathroom. He's waiting for me in the bed, waiting for it. I don't know what to do. What? You've got a man in bed in the hotel. It's not a good situation. Has something awful happened? No, that's what I'm trying to stop. Shall I call the police? I can do that right now. I can call them on the landline if you just hold on. Make sure the bathroom door is locked, and if there's anything heavy in there, you can put it against the door. Calm then. the fuck down, Beach. It's nothing like that. It's me who's done the bad thing who's about to. I don't understand. You're with someone who you shouldn't be with for some reason? Someone you don't like, maybe, as much as you thought? Correct. Is it definitely too late to stop yourself? That's what I'm kind of wondering. He's waiting for me in the bed. Not sure how to get out of it. Just... just just then, a soft, clear voice said, knock, knock, on the other side of the door. Hang on a second. She opened the door a couple of inches. Just talking to my sister. She's a bit upset. I do apologize. I'll be two minutes top. She closed the door again. She turned the lock. OK, I think I've got it now. You're in a hotel and there's a man. Maybe, maybe a man who shouldn't be there and you've had a change of heart and you're locked in the bathroom trying to escape. You got it. And yet you have telephoned me to talk about Mum's funeral. How does this work? <laughs> I don't understand. You can... You can be so strange sometimes. I know. I'm sorry. I know it doesn't add up. I, I didn't realize I needed to until I heard your voice. I'm really sorry. It must sound completely crazy. Well, we can talk about that another time. Is there a hotel phone in the bathroom? Yes, there is. It was wall-mounted next to the shop. Good. Are you dressed? Nighty. Are your clothes in the bathroom? Yes, they're on the chair. Okay, great. This gives us options. So I can telephone the front desk and ask someone to come and get you at any point so you're completely safe to leave if you want to. Would you like me to do that now? Why don't I do that now? Or I can be there in 20 minutes if I jump in a cab. 
Can we talk a bit more first? Really? <laughs> Please. Who's the guy? Oh my God, it's not the one you were meant to be interviewing, is it? No, Beach, you know he didn't show. I told you. How would that even work? He's just someone random I met in the bar. But can we talk a tiny bit more about the funeral? Uh, would you mind? Do I mind? Let me think for a second. Uh, well, I might mind a tiny bit, because obviously I... But do I mind to the extent that I... No, I think it's just about okay. It feels a bit weird, but... Mm. Are you sure you're right, though? I am. I, I, I'll be okay if I'm talking. Talking to you will keep me safe, if you see what I mean. Okay, well, if you're going to put it like that, let's talk a little bit more. What were we saying? Oh, yeah, I remember what I was going to say. I guess if Dad had sat us down and said what that priest said was only partly true because he left out something very important. Yeah, that would have been nice, huh? <laughs> but there's no point saying if he'd been a completely different person, then things would have been completely different. Oh, that's me, isn't it? So it is. Sorry. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. But there's no point saying if he had been a completely different person, things would have been completely different. I mean, if he hadn't been an arsehole, if mum hadn't got ill, if you were a nurse in the Crimean War and I was the king of Spain. True. But of course, he was completely knocked out by it, reeling. He was, but he should have tried to hold things together for us. He should have been strict with himself. He must have tried. I'm sure he did his best. Don't give me that. We don't know what he was going through himself. I'll never forgive him. Don't say that. We have to entertain the possibility that he may have tried. No, we don't. I know I'm driving you nuts. I'm excelling myself, aren't I? You don't need to worry about that. When will it get easier? Well, let's keep talking. You always say that. You know how I think. You know the kinds of things I say. You can't blame me for saying them. Well, I wish one of these days you'd surprise me. Well, I suppose I could, but when I do, you absolutely hate it, so it's a bit tricky. You're scaring me now. Good. Now, how are we going to get you out of their modesty intact? I can handle it. I'll put my clothes on and say, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. What if he gets angry and doesn't let you leave? Please let me rescue you. He's not like that. You can't know that for sure if you've just met. I do know that for sure. I mean, he's quite old. Oh, OK. <laughs> Gross. I know, I know, but nothing's happened. Nothing at all? Well, I mean, I just swander about a bit in my pants, but nothing more than that. <laughs> the very worst that can happen would be a bit of embarrassment. I don't like the idea of you having to deal with it on your own. What if I come and knock on the door and pretend to be a chambermaid? I've got a black skirt and an apron. <laughs> <coughs> or I could get them to do fire practice, maybe, or send you room service. And then you could waltz up with a trolley, or, hey, I could wear my Halloween wig. Beach, <laughs> it's fine. I'll just go in there and say, although I made my bed, I no longer wish to lie in it. Don't say that. What should I say, then? Just say you're not feeling well and you're really sorry, and then run. OK, I can do that. Great, we have a plan. You're not frightened you will change your mind? What if he suddenly seems irresistible? No, that ship has definitely sailed. Actually, can you keep me on the line? Then, if anything turns nasty, I can maybe alert the front desk. Rebecca dressed, gathered up her things and opened the bathroom door, her face contorted with tactful apology. The thing is, and you must think I'm completely, and I'm so sorry to... But, of course, the room was empty. Perfectly Frank had made the bed. A civilised touch, and gone. <laughs> I, I hope that gives everyone a sense of the um, immaculate control you have of um, a long encounter like that. It goes down quite sort of badly, doesn't it, at one point? It's fraught. Because when I wrote this book, I'd had a... a ridiculously difficult few years where at one point when I was shopping for clothes I'd think yes this will look neat on the hospital ward kind of thing which is, isn't how anyone should buy their clothes I, I, I um, my husband said to me why don't you write a comedy which is a kind of thing people say to you when you're completely miserable and it was quite good advice so so it has got a strong vein of comedy mm. although it, it as you can see in that bit it goes mm. it goes both ways Am I right in thinking that you belong to an acting troupe of some sort, a theatre? No, I wish I did. I, I am on the board of a theatre, but that's oh, okay. more sort of committee-ish, sadly. Yes. But um, please tell everyone your version. <laughs> <laughs> um, fame is the other um, theme going through this book. The father was a famous you know, British actor. Yeah, he's oh. a sort of um, national treasure on a, on a sitcom yeah. that everyone watches. And there's um, something about him that we won't reveal at this point. Um, that adds another kind of d dimension to the story. The journalist, who's just been in the um, hotel room, is in a really interesting moral position in regard to um, the family of the actor and the whole business of journalistic responsibility. In fact, 
every person in this, but one way or another, is dealing with the business of public persona and and private self and mm. what can and can't be revealed. And it's been a you know it's been a big deal over the last five or six years, not just through the media, but through social media as well. Yeah, I think I mean I've written a newspaper column for 14 years, so I've I've been very aware of. Um, what's writable about and what mm. isn't. And, and um, I think that the things I was writing towards the end of my column, at the <coughs> beginning, I was so utterly, utterly careful. And occasionally, I'd say to someone, would you mind if I wrote about such and such? And they'd always say, of course, are you mad? Of course, you don't have to ask me. And then towards the end, when I was asking people, they'd say, do you have to? Do you, could, could you maybe not? Or, so I, mm. did, I think um, Rebecca's job does have a big aspect of ethical decline to it. She works for a, quite a rough tabloid where um, she feels, because the people around her stoop to absolutely terrible things, when she just does slightly bad things and feels bad about it, then she must be fine. And very early on in the story, we hear that she's um, sort of inveigled herself into a rehab place to get the stories on everyone, and she's sort of justified it to herself, thinking that it might you know, help people with similar problems or something a bit hopeless. And she... Um, but while she's in the rehab, she sort of discovers things about herself. Mm. So she feels, because she has lost her mother as a child and had a lot of pain in her life, that she has every right to be there just because she hasn't sort of succumbed to an alcohol addiction. It doesn't mean she doesn't deserve help. Or She's got all these kind of not very convincing series of justifications. Mm. And I'm assuming, um, being the daughter of a famous father and a possibly even more famous great-grandfather and Sigmund Freud, your family have, um, on occasions, been um, had to suffer these sorts of depredations from the media. Yeah, I mean, my dad was so incredibly private to the extent that even if he got in a taxi, he didn't like to say where he was going. So we were we. <laughs> <laughs> so we were always brought up to keep secrets about <clears throat> everything, mm. you know, and even now in. You know, if you ask one of my sisters what they had for lunch, they, you know, they, you might not get an answer. So, I mean, we, yeah. it's so ingrained. We were so careful not to ever, 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 ever say. So when... I think that makes it even more difficult when there's mm. things about him in the papers. I mean, I still feel that need to... the need for privacy. And he's, mm. he's, he died in 2011. So I can't single-handedly keep that going forever. And I did sort of try and nearly drive myself crazy in the process. But I think, um, I think with very private people, you do have to respect it. When, when he died, I went, I think, a day or two days later into a newsagent to get some milk or something. And he was on the front of every single newspaper. And, and that was so strange and... and it was very hard to mm. sort of know what to make of that. The good thing was I didn't have to tell anyone, I guess, mm. so that, that was something. But it, it, was, it, was, it was sort of extreme. Um, it occurs to me that that kind of experience is one of many experiences um, you recognise in Judy Garland. And it did also occur to me that love and fame could be the, na the name of any bio of hers. Um, tell us a little bit about um, her part in your life. Well, I just sort of fell for her very early. I think, um, of course, I'm giving a big talk about her tomorrow, so I don't want to give any plot spoilers, but I, I suppose um, from a very early age, I was always told that I was too emotional, that I, that, that, uh, that I expected too much from people and that I had too many feelings and that I must be tough and brave and all my life was going to be a disaster, and, and, um, which is quite hard to hear when you're about five. And... and um, <laughs> And then, and then when I saw The Wizard of Oz for the first time, I had a sense that here was someone whose feelings ran as high as my own, and, and she was making it look about the sort of best thing, uh, the sort of best way of being a, pers a person could have, and that, that was a, a tremendous thing for me to hear at that point. There was a great sort of smash of recognition that there was another way of... Um, that it wasn't that growing up didn't need to be all about keeping your head down and trying to hide any needs you might have, but you could... Um, and I think a sense also that um, you should sort of celebrate everything good and mourn everything bad to within an inch of its life and maybe mourn everything good and celebrate everything bad as well and just the, a sense of a, a, 
a full life might be a life with the largest number of feelings, and that could be, um, although that that wasn't necessarily going to be popular, or that if I had a sense I had more, more, um, more feelings than was palatable to the sort of average human person I ever met, that that didn't, that didn't need to mean disgrace and disaster. And so then I just became very interested in all her films and, mm. and collected them all, and people got them for me, and my brothers nicked them from record shops, which was nice of them. Uh, and um, Into her albums? Yeah, mm. and I had, a, I had a record of the whole of The Wizard of Oz, not just the words, not just the songs, but the words, and I used to just sort of recite it, you know, to sit in my bedroom saying, that dog's a menace to the community, I'm taking it to the sheriff to be destroyed, <laughs> things like that, so it wasn't just the Judy bits and, you know... Mm. This was before there was obviously wasn't much to do in my household. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, you can hear so much more about this from Susie tomorrow night, is it? Yeah, yeah. so it's just, she's just been a lovely wallpaper to my life and, and uh, um, you know, just someone, someone whose sorrows and difficulties I've rooted for and I've had the fantasy that she's done the same for me. Hmm. It's getting near the end and I, I want to give the audience an opportunity. Are there any? No, there aren't any microphones. Um, maybe there isn't a chance to ask questions. Oh, they're, sorry, they're at the back. So if, if you would like to ask a question of Susie, please um, leave your seat and find the microphones at the back. And I'll ask a question in the meantime. Um, I love, have loved reading all your books, Susie, but perhaps the one um, I, I loved the most was The Small Hours. Can um, we talk a little bit about the beautiful Harriet March? It's funny, some of my friends say that that book is so sad it should come with a free packet of Smarties. <laughs> they issued formal complaints. It's also, um, it's also funny, there's a really funny bit when she explains what Holy Communion wafers are to the children. I thought that was great, a biscuit for God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's about a woman who inherits some money from her father and has had a very difficult early life and decides to open a nursery school to, that's absolutely lovely with the children can go and help out in the local cafe and have little waitresses' notepads, and she lets the people... In. There's a street market in the next street, and they can operate the vegetable stalls, and there's ponies in the garden, and she's just sort of trying to create this utterly idyllic um, environment full of love and care and fun, possibly to give herself the childhood she never had, and sort of what happens to that enterprise. Into the, I mean, her devotion to creating this is so total that she spends many, many hours making marzipan oh, yes. fruits. When it's Harvest Festival, she decides to make an individual um, basket filled with marzipan fruits for each children, and 19 hours in, she just <laughs> when she thinks she's about to die of almond poisoning, she sort of despairs. But then they do all love it, and mm. she, she feels it was worthwhile. And we learn slowly that there are um, things that have been missing from her own childhood and her past. And she's just emerged from seven years of three times a week therapy. So it was, it was a bit about how literal can you be about repairing the damage of the past? Can you, it's one thing to sort of try and heal a difficult past, but could you sort of cancel it out and make it sort of annul it, make it not have happened, which mm. is sort of possibly what she's trying to do. Um, there are many moods in that book, as well as sadness, but it's also formally very um, adventurous. It's n a non-linear narrative, although one never, ever loses control of where one is. But wh why did you choose to not go forward um, predictably and then and then? Well, I did it at an earlier stage, but I, um, I was quite inspired by the structure of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, where things jump about a lot and you mm. hear that there's something bad going to happen. So instead of wondering about whether it's going to work out or whether it's going to go wrong. You're told that it goes wrong, so then it's about why it went mm. wrong. So mm. I sort of thought that that would... I'm not completely sure that that was the right thing to do, so I'm glad you think it was. But mm. I, I, I felt that, it, that by sort of chopping it up, it sort of echoed her a sort of chaotic mental state as well. Yes, and uh, uh, the way that um, memories and anxieties work inside us. We're going backwards and forwards all the time. Mm. You, you're also formally adventurous in the way you use tense right from the beginning of your books. Um, every now and again within a paragraph, I hope I'm not telling you anything you don't know, <laughs> um, a, a character may be sitting down or she sat down. Sometimes you slip from one to the other. Is that about replicating psychological... 
I think so. An early version of this book, the tense has changed all the time, yeah. and I decided to um, to sort of change that. But um, I just wanted it to seem very, very lively. I like creating characters that people remember for years and years to come, and that when you're reading Love and Fame, I really want you to feel that you're living with them and you're experiencing the crazy household routines of people trying to express grief and trying not to, mm. and just a, a sense of sort of really being absorbed by it. And I think um, using tenses differently maybe slightly helps achieve that. Mm. It's so skillfully done, you don't really notice it, except every now and again you go back and check. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to read. The other thing that struck me was that you pay great attention to the fabric, the colour, and the ensemble of clothing. Um, to the degree where I started to look forward to it. Um, so one has quite a strong visual of the costuming of everyone in your stories. Yeah, my mum was in the rag trade and she sold um, old-fashioned clothes, sort of Victorian 90s and 1950s dresses, what then was called second-hand, but now is grandly labelled vintage. But, um, so when I would come home from school, there was always a big cauldron on the stove of you know, white lace bubbling up, and I'd always think, oh, what's for supper? And she'd say, oh, it's just some bloomers or something like that. So, and in all the doorways of the, our house, there were things hanging up ready for this. She had a stall in a market on Saturday, so I was, um, which is, gave my childhood quite a sort of Victorian mm. air, but, but I was very aware of fabric and things mm. from an early age because of that. And there's also... Knowing really when you're sort of three that oh, that slip looks like silk, but it's actually rayon kind of thing, right. which probably most three-year-olds wouldn't no. know. <laughs> Indeed. But it adds a sort of sensory level to the stories as well. Yeah. Is, there, is there many clothes in this one? I didn't remember that there were, but maybe I'm not, 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 not so much in that so one. Much, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I was aware of it in the small house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also food has its place, and there are often characters struggling with food yeah. and what it means in their lives. Yeah, I'm very interested in food and... and um, the relationship of food and love and how if you love someone, giving them food is often part of it. And, and um, I was very obsessed with food when I was a child. I was in a school play once and I particularly auditioned for a part because it said that the Wicked Witch, while she was eating lunch, there was this sort of incident in the rest of the play. So I sort of assumed that I was going to be presented with this. And I think they gave me a bowl with some little bits of paper in it to represent. And I was so horrified that I hadn't gone for a different part. So that's, that's how interested in food I was. <laughs> it's, it's so... Um, I said to Susie backstage that I felt she was, you know, um, a writer for children as well as um, she would write beautifully about childhood for children you have an acute sort of recall of those kinds of things and, and the way the adult world seems slightly puzzling to a child. And food is often about something being withheld when you're a child. Power and control. Power yeah. and control, yeah. Is there anyone who wants a question? No, good, I'll keep going then. <laughs> <laughs> um, last night, um, Susie, you um, amused everyone enormously by giving um, a, a, a story about a friend who'd called you to account in one of your meetings, and um, she had a list of ten reasons why the friendship wasn't working very well. And um, the first that one was fun. The first one was <laughs> that you weren't sufficiently interested in her ch children's schooling, and uh, <coughs> and I was um, happy to hear that because there's a very particular milieu that you're often writing about. Um, your characters are enormously sympathetic. But in the small hours particularly... There's some really bad mums in that book. such horrible parents and some bad dads as well. Mm. Um, people who are too full of themselves and people who are just neglectful. And Harriet's idea is to provide for these children who are rich in everything except care and time for their parents. Yeah. And I assume that's a sort of certain milieu of London you're describing. Yeah, um, it, was a bit, it was a bit made up, but there, my daughter was briefly at a nursery school that was a bit um, was a bit insane, and there was a, a a nanny, a babysitter working at that school, and the mum just didn't come home for three nights and without telling her, and she didn't know what to do, and mm. you know there's a sort of sense of people people with money being quite out of control around their children, which I found really shocking somehow. Funniest bit is the parent who um, the mother who what's sad as well, who complains about the um, range of the palette that her daughter is using in her drawings. Um, not, n and what are they going to do about that? Um, and, um, but in fact, that leads us into something very poignant. 
Yeah, she said that she complains that her daughter was tending to use the cold colours in her paintings more than the warm colours, and sort of, why was this, and mm. were the warm colours not adequately represented in the paint pots, and, you know... <laughs> dare you to all try that. Sadly, um, it's zero, zero hour. <laughs> we have to stop. <laughs> Can I say thank you so much for what's been an extraordinary um, reading experience for me, and thank you for being so warm and giving with our audience. Thank you very much. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.